The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 66 to the chief musician, a song, a psalm. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves, Selah. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals. With the sweet aroma of rams, I will offer bulls and goats. Selah. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. All right, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to do four verses today. 24 verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I warned you last week, before I get into the sermon notes, that I'm not going to be favorable to another preacher. I was asked about a year ago, I'll explain this again in the sermon, but I was asked about a year ago to speak on a sermon he did, and it was a sermon that is based on his theology, which is very poor theology. You'll see that in a minute. If you disagree with me, then you shouldn't be in this church anyway, because I support the land of Israel and the people of Israel, and because of that, we'll start. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, a certificate of divorce. 
A bit more than a year ago, a member of the congregation sent me the sermon, God's Divorce from Israel, given by Chuck Baldwin. I was asked to address it as Baldwin claims that the divorce of Israel means that the people in the land of Israel today are not God's people, and that they are no longer a part of what God is doing in the world. As his sermon is openly posted on YouTube for all the world to see, I will not be as gracious as I might otherwise have been. Unsound theology is to be called out openly and publicly, as Paul reveals in Galatians chapter 2. To his credit, Baldwin does acknowledge that Jews are a part of the church, but that is as obvious as the nose on one's face. Any person on the planet who trusts in Jesus is a part of the church, which is the bride of Christ. Other than this one sermon, I know nothing about this guy. But this sermon clearly reveals a faulty hermeneutic that completely misses what God is doing in and through Israel in redemptive history. I can't hold back my disdain for his theology, nor will I. Such doctrine as his reveals a God that is not faithful to his covenants, and his word is not to be taken at face value. We must remember that man's unfaithfulness does not negate the faithfulness of God. In his sermon, Baldwin cites the verses used in today's passage, well, actually he miscites them, in order to come to an erroneous conclusion concerning Israel of today. He says that these verses in Deuteronomy 24 were as a protection for the woman. Everybody got that? A protection for women in general. That has nothing to do with what Moses is saying. The entire basis for what is said is found only in verse 4, and it has nothing to do with that. He then says that the Lord, through the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, is basically saying, here's his, a quote from him, as you divorced Israel against your wives, I am using divorce against you. You and I are through. This marriage is over. In saying that, he is then implying that the Lord is the wrongdoer because he has divorced his wife, who is supposed to be protected, as he noted earlier about his analysis of scripture. The thought process is unclear, and it is convoluted. If the Lord is the husband and the purpose of the law is to protect the wife, then one could only conclude that the Lord failed to protect his wife by divorcing her. This is a problem with not studying the law properly and instead relying on life application and topical sermons. There is no understanding of what the Lord is actually conveying in really important passages of Scripture. The doctrinal statement on his church's website says he begins well and it goes downhill. LF, which is his church, opposes socialism, good job, neoconism, good job, and Zionism, lumping them all together. Accordingly, we do not support the socialist welfare state, I agree with that, or the neocon warfare state, I agree with that. Neither do we believe that the modern Zionist state of Israel represents either historical, meaning biblical, Israel, or prophetic Israel. Accordingly, we reject Schofieldism and dispensational futurism. In other words, the prophetic words of Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, and so on are not to be taken literally when they speak of Israel, the people, and they have no part of God's redemptive plans for the future. That means 100% and for sure that he does not believe our text verse for today. Amos 9, 14, and 15. This is the Lord speaking. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. 
They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up. Has that ever happened in human history? No, because they were exiled at the Roman exile. So it can't be the previous exile. Everybody got that? And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. There is no time in human history where this has been literally fulfilled. Israel was pulled up twice. And so if you don't believe that the people in the land today are who the Lord is speaking of, then you either don't believe the word or you must say that these words mean something other than what they say. Thus, with his theology, the Bible, meaning the word of God concerning these verses, is one, wrong, or two, it must be spiritualized. This is true with countless other Old Testament and New Testament verses, which clearly indicate that God is not through with Israel, and that he has planted them back in the land of Israel for his sovereign purposes. In one of his statements during the sermon, and speaking of the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, He says that the destruction of Jerusalem was God's writ of divorcement from Israel. I'd love to find where in scripture he gets that idea, but it's not there, so he won't. He was saying this in relation to the words of Jeremiah 3, which we will cite today. Jeremiah 3, guess what, is at a time prior to the first temple along with Jerusalem destruction, not the second. Oops. So how can the divorce that Baldwin is speaking of be the Roman divorce? Obviously, the temple destruction does not mean, as he arbitrarily and incorrectly claims, a divorce. If it did, there would have been two divorces. Oops. (laughs) Secondly, as you will see in our words today, the Lord never divorced Judah. Oops. That is actually rather important because Judah is the land and the people group where the temple and Jerusalem is. Oops. The Lord was speaking about a divorce with the northern ten tribes, Israel. Oops. But even they are called back by the Lord to himself, as is clearly stated elsewhere in Scripture. Oops. There are lots and lots of oopsies in his 22-minute and 41-second sermon. So many that I am personally embarrassed for him. A little less golfing or whatever he does and a bit more study will help resolve this. A reliance on a literal interpretation of the word of God when it calls for it will help resolve this as well. And learning the context of what is being said is always a giant help. In that sermon, his thoughts are confused. His handling of scripture is appalling and his conclusions make no sense at all. As this is the only sermon I have ever seen of his, I will chalk this up to a really bad week. No time to prepare for his sermon and temporary loss of memory involving important Bible verses as he was speaking. Otherwise, if this is indicative of his normal theology, those who sit under him are being instructed in a very poor manner by someone who probably should take an extended vacation and do nothing but read the word again and again until it sinks in. Wonderful truths such as pleasing God through sound doctrine and proper theology are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is when a man takes a wife. It's verses one through four. 
The first four verses comprise one sentence, the main subject of which is not found until the fourth verse. Everything before that is given to bring the reader to understand what is forbidden there. Moses' words are stated precisely and with logical purpose and intent. With that in mind, verse 1 now begins with, When a man takes a wife and marries her. When takes man wife and has dominion over her. The word ba'al, signifying to marry or rule over, is used. The idea of being a wife or being married has been seen many times since Genesis 2-4. But the verb ba'al has only been used twice so far, beginning in Genesis 20, verse 3. In both instances, it referred to the authority of the man over the woman. The noun form ba'al has also been used a couple times in the same manner. Moses' use of it now shows that he is referring to rule of a man over a woman. In the use of this now, it implies an unequal footing. This is seemingly at odds with what was stated in Genesis chapter 2, where it says in Genesis 2, 23 and 24, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the words of Genesis 2, it can be argued that it implies an equalness displayed in mutual interaction. There may be differing roles, but they would seemingly work harmoniously together. Only in Genesis 3 does this appear to change. Here's what it says in Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Nothing was said of rule until that point. But from that point on, it is taken as an axiom that the man will rule over his wife. Even if a oneness is still what occurs, it is a oneness with an authority and rule within the union. As for this rule of the man over the woman in marriage, in such a state, Moses continues with, verse 1 going on, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. And it shall be if no, she finds grace in his eyes. This is a conditional clause leading to the purpose stated in the main clause. Further, Moses is not saying that such will ever happen, but he is simply noting that if it does happen, what actions can be taken and what things are forbidden based on such action. The man has assumed authority over a woman through marriage. And now she fails to find grace in his eyes. Grace is getting what one does not deserve. In other words, there is something wrong, and the husband is unwilling to overlook that thing. His favor does not extend to such a point. If this is the case, verse 1 continues, because he has found some uncleanness in her. When he is found in her nakedness, thing. In other words, there is something in her that exposes her as unclean, blemished, having some shame, or something like that. The actual meaning is hard to pin down. As such, different sects within the nation of Israel arbitrarily decided what it meant, even extending it to any reason at all. In this, they leaned more on the precept provided now than on the implication of Genesis 2 verse 24, which was the binding of two as one. In other words, they took the union as one being made of two rather than the union of two being as one. In this, Moses says, verse 1 continues, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. 
Vekatav la sefer keritut, and writes to her scroll, divorce. Here the word keritut, or divorce, is introduced. It is from karat, to cut down, or to cut off. Thus it is a cutting of the bonds of marriage. The word will be seen just four times, twice in this chapter, and then in Isaiah 50 verse 1 and Jeremiah 3 verse 8. All four of these instances are to be cited as we continue in our words today. Divorce will be referred to in the New Testament as well. For now, he, verse 1 continues, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And gives in her hand and sends her out from his house. It is an obvious set of words. The man determined that the woman wasn't right for whatever reason the law tolerated. As the authority over her, the certificate is written. He then puts it in her hand and sends her away. The woman, because of the bill of divorce, is presumably permitted to be married to another. As noted above, the idea of a certificate of divorce is also found in the New Testament. Jesus more perfectly explains this troubling matter from Matthew 5. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He cites Moses. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus, quoting Moses now, does not say that what Moses said is inappropriate. Rather, he shows that the result of what is written can lead to that which is inappropriate. In other words, he does not say that divorce itself is sin, but a divorce can lead to sin. You'll have all of this explained to you in a minute. Paul further clarifies what this means, saying in 1 Corinthians 7, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul shows that a departure means the woman is to remain unmarried or to be reconciled to her husband. And more, he says that in the New Covenant, a believing husband is not to divorce his wife. He provides no exceptions to this. He does, however, provide more guidelines and an exemption to one married to a non-believer. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 7 again. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say... If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not bound under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, that you will save your wife? In all cases, the onus to protect the marriage is placed upon the believer. As far as Jesus' words, it is only later in Matthew that he explains the meaning of his earlier words. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered them and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, 
and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. That's Matthew 19. Jesus shows that what the law permitted does not abrogate what the original intent for marriage is. Despite this, Moses has permitted divorce and the sending away of a woman. Thus, verse 2, when she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And she goes out from his house and she has walked and she becomes to man another. This is still a conditional clause. Nothing has been mandated. This is simply a proposition which is set forth. The woman has been given a bill of divorce. She has been sent out. And in her being sent out, she has become wife to another man. Ish. Not Baal. Man. Not master. These words are important. As such, a new dynamic has arisen for the man who sent her out, which begins to be realized next. Verse 3. If the latter husband detests her. And hates her, the man, the latter. The woman has become a wife to another man. Ish, not Baal. Man, not master. And he now hates her. As this is still a proposition set forth as a possibility, if such is the case, verse 3 continues, and writes her a certificate of divorce. Vekatav la sefer keritut. And writes to her scroll divorce. It is word for word and letter for letter exactly the same as what was said of the first husband. The latter husband has written her a scroll of divorce. It is still a proposition of possibility, if such is the case, and he then, verse 3 continues, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Ve'natan ve'yada ve'shelecha mi beto, and gives in her hand and sends her out from his house. Again, it is a word-for-word and letter-for-letter copy of what was said in verse 1. She has been given a scroll of divorce, it has been placed in her hand, and she has been sent out of his house. If such is the case, verse 3 continues, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife. O ki yamut ha'acharon asher lekaha lo le'isha. Or when dies the latter who took her his to wife. A second possibility that ends the marriage is set forth. The latter husband, ish, not Baal, man, not master, dies. If either of these occurs in this hypothetical situation, verse 4, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife. Lo yukal bala harishon asher shalecha lashuv lekatcha liyot lo leisha. No is able her master the first who sent her to return to take to be to his to wife. There is no allowance for the first husband, Baal, not Ish, master, not man, to retake the woman as his wife again. 
This is the purpose of the entire set of verses. The conditional statements in the proposition set forth have been laid down in order to form a point of law. That is now stated explicitly, but the reason is not yet given. That only comes in the next words. Verse 4 continues, after she has been defiled. The Hebrew is precise here. It is a form of a verb known as a hithpael. It is a causative reflexive verb. In other words, there is causation, her being defiled, but the action of the verb is both committed and received by the same entity. It says, Ahare asher huta ma'a, after which she has allowed herself to be defiled. It is the woman who has gone astray. This is exactly in line with the words of both Jesus and Paul, as is seen earlier. From Matthew 5, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. And then from 1 Corinthians 7, now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Jesus says that when the woman remarries, she has committed adultery. A man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In both cases, the woman is the cause of the adultery. Paul, speaking of believers, says the same thing. This is why the term Baal has been used of the first husband, but Ish was used of the latter husband or husbands. The authority remains with the first husband because she was one flesh with the husband as the head. In remarrying, she has caused herself to be defiled. Of these verses, John Lang correctly states the following. The pointing in the original makes it clear that Moses does not institute or command divorce. The pointing in our version implies that he does so. In other words, if you're reading the Hebrew, you don't get the same sense as the English, and that's why I've been so particular in giving you the Hebrew. The pointing in our version implies that he does so. He is merely prescribing limitations on regulations to a prevailing custom, which was not in accordance with the institution of marriage and was only permitted there in this limited sense and under these restrictions for the hardness of their hearts. In fact, in following the words set forth by Moses, it is clear that the first husband was the head of that woman, even when she marries another. Her obligation remains to him, and in her having another man, she then is the one who brings defilement upon herself. As she is defiled at that point, he cannot take her back. Verse 4 continues, For that is an abomination before the Lord. For abomination she before Jehovah. It is a feminine pronoun indicating it or she. Most translations say for it, meaning that, is an abomination before the Lord. Only the Dewey Reigns, a Catholic Bible, gets it right, saying because she is defiled and is become abominable before the Lord. The question for the translators is, is this referring to the act of the man taking her back, it is an abomination, or is it referring to the woman who has been defiled, she is an abomination. 
The subject is the act, but the nearest antecedent is the woman. The answer is clearly she is an abomination. The unusual construction of the verse helps clue into the meaning. It says before Jehovah, not before Jehovah your God. In her defiling of herself, she is an abomination before the Lord. Because of this, the action is still wrong because of her state. As such, it will be sin, as Moses next says. Verse 4 continues, and you shall not bring sin on the land. Velotachti et haaretz, and no shall you bring sin on the land. By joining again to a woman who has allowed herself to be defiled, the guilt of sin will be brought upon the land. And with that in mind, Moses again reminds the people that it is the land, verse 4 finishes with, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. The land is given to Israel. They are to remain pure, undefiled, and holy before the Lord. In sending away a wife, the woman can, in fact, marry another. However, in doing so, she brings defilement on herself. However, it is the man who allowed this to occur. The law, through Moses, is not condoning divorce. Rather, it is speaking against it while still permitting it. That could not be any clearer from the context of Moses' words. He has shown that the original husband is the one to whom she is obligated, even when she goes to another man, Baal as opposed to Ish. If the first husband was to take her back after being defiled by another man, then guilt would be brought upon the land. What is it that the Lord expects of us? To marry and stick it out through and through. Let us fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, and in our times of trouble, he will carry us through. Just as the Lord is merciful and forgiving, so should we be to our own husband or wife. Together we should be united in holy living, and let offenses go, not living in strife. Just as the Lord has forgiven his people when they turn and repent at his feet, let us forgive the spouse we joined neath the steeple and remain united in the bond of love so sweet. To the glory of the Lord who died for us, let us live in harmony before the Lord Jesus. Our second thought today, pictures of Christ. To establish the relationship of the Lord to Israel, one must go back to the covenant made between them, the covenant at Sinai. In that covenant, Israel agreed to the terms, whatever they may be, that the Lord spoke forth. In those terms, as found in Leviticus 26, the Lord promised that Israel would be punished, even to the point of exile for disobedience. Israel, the northern ten tribes, was exiled by the Assyrians. Eventually, Judah was exiled to Babylon. Despite the northern ten tribes being exiled, and this is a, a huge point of theology that 99% of the church gets wrong, none of those tribes can be considered as lost. Everybody's heard of the lost ten tribes? There are no lost ten tribes. People from most of these tribes are mentioned later in Scripture, after the record of the exile of those tribes. I'll give you an example of one right now. Paul, he's from Benjamin. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, was from Asher. We could go on and on. They're mentioned after the exile, okay? As long as they're members of those tribes, the tribes cannot be considered as gone. In fact, Jesus, Paul, and James refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. Both Paul and James refer to them in the present tense, clearly indicating that there were 12 tribes at the time. This is scripturally indisputable. 
In Ezekiel 4, the Lord used Ezekiel as a living metaphor for what he would do in regard to the exile of the people. He tells the prophet to lie on his left side for 390 days in order to bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. He then told him to lie on his right side for 40 days to bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. It is to be noted that Ezekiel's prophecy is dated at or after the supposed divorce of Israel in Jeremiah 3 verse 8. It is a huge and unexplained problem with Mr. Baldwin's theology. Together, they total 430 days. In that state, the Lord tells Ezekiel what to do in order to mirror what he would do to Israel. In this, the Lord told Ezekiel that he would be assigned to the people. The prophet would be assigned to the people. They would bear the punishment a year for every day that Ezekiel lay on his side. Everybody got that? A year for a day. Just like the wilderness wanderings, one year for every day that you were here and they were, they, the spies went away for 40 days, they came back and they were punished for 40 years. Everybody got that? He does this all throughout scripture, a year for a day. The exile of Judah that included the people of the 12 tribes, remember none of the tribes are lost, the exile of Judah that included the people of the 12 tribes lasted for 70 years. In this, there would thus be 360 years, a day for a year of punishment left. However, in Leviticus 26, the Lord said to the people, and after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. That's Leviticus 26, verse 18. The correction of exile and punishment did not change the people. In this, the remaining 360 were to be multiplied by seven thus equaling 2,520 years. The decree of King Cyrus, which allowed the people to return to Israel from the Babylonian exile, came in May 536 B.C. Using the biblical calendar of 360 days per year and adding 2,520 years, which is 907,200 days to that, one arrives, guess what, at May 1948 the year that Israel was reestablished as a nation. If one accepts this dating, which I'm sure Mr. Baldwin doesn't, but if you do, it is obvious that there is yet a purpose for the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. Now, this is not in the sermon, but I'd like to add something on to this. From May 1948 until June of 1967 was 19 years. The first exile of Judah occurred 19 years later, the final exile of Judah occurred. Jerusalem was recaptured 19 years after the reestablishment of Israel. This is not coincidence. This is God's divine workings in human history. Countless other dates and events could be added to this list, but that alone is sufficient to demonstrate that the prophecy of Ezekiel has merit in relation to the people of Israel today. Along with that, Another prophecy from Daniel 9 has a bearing on the dating of the coming of the Messiah, the second exile of Israel for rejecting their Messiah, and the reintroduction of the law by Israel for another seven years. That is the tribulation period coming after the church age. It is another study for another time, but it clearly demonstrates that both the dispensation of the law for seven more years and then the final establishment of Israel in the new covenant lie ahead for them. In fact, Leviticus 26 refers to exactly this 
exactly this as it closes out. This is one of the most misunderstood parts of the entire Bible is the ending of Leviticus 26, and it is where all replacement theology begins its trek down the wrong way. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they have also walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. He just talked about the covenant with who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he did it in reverse. Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, right? But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. The Lord first appeals to the covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, verse 42. It is a land covenant to the people of Israel. However, the Lord continues by appealing to the Mosaic covenant in verse 45. That covenant continues beyond Sinai, meaning Mount Horeb, to the words of Deuteronomy. In that covenant are words already seen that speak of a prophet like Moses, whom the people are to hear, lest the Lord cut them off. That prophet like Moses was clearly seen in those verses to be Christ Jesus. As that is a part of the Mosaic Covenant, and as the Mosaic Covenant is what the Lord appeals to, then it must be that in appealing to the Mosaic Covenant, the Lord is also referring to the acceptance of the prophet like Moses, Christ Jesus. Jesus, speaking to Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel and representative of the nation, even told them that this would be the case, stating that he... Jesus Christ would not return to them, Israel, until they acknowledged him as the one that Moses spoke of. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me, you Israel shall not see me, the Lord until the time comes when you say, Baruch haba Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you post that on your chat with somebody on Facebook and you start arguing theology, they'll go to Matthew and they'll show that they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as they're hailing him at the, right? Okay, uh, Palm, uh, Palm Sunday, right? And they say, see, it's been fulfilled in Matthew wrong. Matthew is topical. Mark is chronological. Okay. Matthew starts where? In the Galilee. It doesn't start in Jerusalem. It starts up in the Galilee. He's already done with Jerusalem. And this is how Matthew is giving you a topical exposition of what Jesus did in his ministry. Mark is not. Mark says this day and the next day and the next day. And guess what? 
That comes after the proclamation. So you can tell them that they're wrong and they need to recheck their theology. Jesus Christ told Israel that he will return when they call on him. Okay? Christ will only return when they acknowledge him as Lord, meaning Jehovah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Jehovah, the Lord. Confusing though it may be, this needed to be laid out in order to understand what is being pictured in our passage today. The Lord took Israel as a wife under the Old Covenant. That is stated explicitly in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. There you go, says the Lord. That's Jeremiah 31, 31, and 32. In the sermon by Chuck Baldwin, and in an attempt to deny any connection of Israel today to the Lord as his people, he cites Isaiah 50, claiming it demonstrates that the Lord divorced Israel. (laughs) Isaiah 50, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves. And for your transgressions, your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. Unfortunately, Baldwin completely misunderstood what is being conveyed there. First, the Lord is speaking to Judah, not Israel. But more, he never says that he divorced their mother. Isaiah is speaking to the people in the plural about the state of their mother, Judah, whom they issue from. She had sold herself, putting herself away. The Lord, typologically the male in the agreement, had not issued a certificate of divorce. That is evidenced in the words, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? It is a rhetorical question demanding a negative answer. Judah had put itself away, but that was not the Lord's direction, and thus it could not be binding. This is also what Israel did. The Lord says in Jeremiah 3, verse 1, they say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, May he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Jeremiah was citing Moses, right? Saying, if you do this, you're going to defile the land, and yet he is saying, return to me. How can the Lord do that without defiling the land himself? You'll find out in a minute. As Jeremiah 3 progresses, the Lord shows that Israel had, in fact, received a certificate of divorce for her transgressions. Here's what it says from Jeremiah 3. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah had not turned to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, says the Lord, 
Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. The Lord speaks to the people individually. It is plural. Though Israel had received her certificate of divorce, this did not negate individuals returning to him, which he clearly calls out for them to do, saying, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you, plural. How would this come about? By bringing them to Zion. Thus, Israel would now fall under the umbrella of Judah. Remember, he didn't divorce Judah. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce? Not understanding this and lumping Israel and Judah together as one, Baldwin said, and actually we ought to say Israel divorced God because it was the sins of Israel that broke up the marriage. He is wrong. But more, there is no provision for this in the law. A woman cannot divorce a husband. A husband only can divorce the woman. It is the man who issues the certificate. The law never says a woman could do so, and the typology of Jesus Christ must be maintained. The entire point of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, is based on the conclusion found in verse 4. But that did not occur between the Lord and Judah. This is why the alternating terms Baal and Ish are used. The use of Baal is directed toward the first husband. He is the head of the woman. Before getting to that, Baldwin makes a point of saying that the Lord placed upon the people of Israel the name Lo-Ami, not my people. He then uses that to justify that Israel is no longer God's people. When saying that, he doesn't say where the term Lo-Ami comes from, but it is from Hosea 1 verse 9. Citing that as a standalone thought completely ignores all of the rest of Hosea, such as Hosea 2, 13 through 23. It is there that the Lord makes a play on these words, Ish and Baal, that Moses stresses in our sermon verses. First, he uses the term Baal when speaking of foreign gods, saying the following, I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. However, the Lord notes that after their punishment, they would be restored using the name Baal, the false god, in 2.13 to make a pun on the word Baal, master, referring to the Lord, thus showing the intimate connection between the Lord and Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope, she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up 
from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, Ishi, and no longer call me my master, Baali. For I will take from her mouth the name of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. In this he said that you will call me my husband, Ishi, and no longer call me my master, Ba'ali. He is returning to the state in Eden, where the man and the woman would be as one, no longer calling the Lord master, but man. As far as the term lo-ami, or not my people, Baldwin completely missed the context of Hosea, and of what is stated in the New Testament. In the next verses of Hosea, the Lord says the following, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Anyone can make the Bible say anything if verses are arbitrarily picked out and cited. But when taken in context, they will inevitably bear a completely different meaning. As far as the New Testament, Paul first cites that verse as pertaining to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 9. I'll be fair. Paul is speaking about the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. However, Peter then uses that same thought when speaking to the Jews, meaning after the church age, as is in accord with the dispensational model and the layout of the books of the Bible. Peter, the apostle to the Jews, has his epistles placed after Paul's. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you, and he's speaking to the pilgrims of the dispersion. He's speaking to Jews. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy because you've been under punishment for 2,000 years, but now have obtained mercy. Peter's letter is addressed not to the Gentiles, but to the pilgrims of the dispersion, meaning Jews. Even Hosea gives us this insight as is laid out in a chiasm, which I found in 2007. Hosea 1.9 through 2.23, But me she forgot, says the Lord. I call this a chiasm of contrasts, our unfaithfulness and God's unlimited mercy. A, you are not my people, I will not be your God. That's verse 1-9. Down in verse 2-23, you are my people, you are my God. B, verse one ten. Jezreel, God will sow. B, verse 2-22, Jezreel, God will sow. 
Verse 2, 3, dry land, thirst. C, verse 2, 21 and 22, grain, new wine, oil. Verse 2, 5, the wife departs from her husband. D, verse 2, 19, husband, betrothes, wife. E, 2, 7, wife returns to husband. E, the Lord says that you will call me my husband. F, take away the new wine. F, 2.15, give vineyards. G, 2.10 through 12, God punishes Israel. G, 2.14, God comforts Israel. H, 2.13, God will punish her. H, God will allure her. And the anchor of it is, but me, she forgot, says the Lord. But guess what? The Lord never forgot Israel. Man's unfaithfulness cannot negate God's faithfulness. That's why I call that a chiasm of contrast. Everything is contrasting. While Israel was a people, the Gentiles were without the Lord. When Israel rejected their Messiah, the Gentiles, along with any believing Jews, became the people of God. When the church is raptured, yes, I'm sorry for those who don't believe in it. Yes, a pre-tribulation rapture is the proper doctrine of the church. The focus will again be on Israel. The issue of Israel as a nation is separate, but it is still relevant. For Israel, there is individual salvation. Even Baldwin got that right, saying there's Jews in the church today. Individual salvation. But there is also collective national salvation. Each Jew who is to be saved must come to Christ individually. However, God made promises to Israel as a nation as well. For Israel as a nation to be saved, they must call on Christ nationally. Now, does everybody understand that? Because Jesus said it with his own mouth. When you call out to me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then I will return to you. There is individual salvation, but Israel as a nation has a collective salvation. That will happen when they, the leaders who represent the people, call out just as Jesus said they would, as was cited in Luke 13 earlier. Who is the Lord's bride? The answer is not a simple here she is. And this is the fundamental flaw of most people. They say, well, the bride is, and that's it. It doesn't work that way. The idea of being a bride of the Lord is not a literal man standing next to a woman dressed in white. It is a concept of being brought into a right covenant relationship with him. The idea of a single betrothal marriage is not all there is in the redemptive narrative. Believers are individually betrothed to Christ when we accept the gospel. Everybody know that? You become a part of the bride of Christ individually. The church will be presented as the bride of Christ as is stated in Ephesians 5. That's a second bride, okay? This will occur at the rapture of the church. Israel was united to the Lord as a bride under the old covenant. So there's another bride. The Lord's got a lot of brides unless you understand what is going on. And they will nationally be again united to the Lord as a bride, as is indicated in the many, many Old and New Testament passages referred to in our sermon today and many other passages. Finally, there is the general thought of being united as a bride to Christ, as is described in Revelation 21. How is Israel, who had and still has rejected the Lord, brought into a right relationship with God? It is through the death of Christ on their behalf. They are the wife who made herself an abomination before the Lord. 
According to the law, the old covenant, they could not be brought back to him once they had been defiled as they were. But through Christ and the new covenant, it is not only possible, it will come to pass. The new covenant, the Christ covenant, was established not with the church, but with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That is stated explicitly in Jeremiah 31, and again in Hebrews chapter 8. We cited Jeremiah 31 already in the sermon. How could this come about when both Israel and Judah had been an unfaithful spouse? How could the Lord say to Israel, return to me after they had been given a certificate of divorce? It is because Christ Jesus, the Lord, died to pay their sin debt. In his death, a new covenant was established with them. The divorce of Israel by the Lord occurred under the Mosaic covenant. The renewing of the betrothal to Israel and Judah occurs under the new covenant in his blood. Does everybody see that? If you don't, go back and watch this 10 or 12 times. You will get it. Gentiles are not what is going on here. Gentiles are grafted into what is going on here. We merely share in the commonwealth of what God has bestowed upon Israel. If you don't understand that, go read Ephesians 2, verse 12. How preachers can stand in the pulpit and question the word of God, the promises of the Lord, and the integrity of his covenants is utterly astonishing. Again, go read Ephesians 2, verse 12. When theology becomes about us, it is improper theology. When we reject what God has explicitly stated, we reject him. His word is a reflection of who he is. For whatever perverse reason, the past 2,000 years have been filled with a theology that essentially says, God cannot be trusted because God has divorced these people and they are no longer his people. Yes, Hosea calls that out, but then Hosea turns around and says exactly the opposite only a moment later. God is not fickle, but we are lazy. We form our opinions and we stop when they are formed, rejecting anything else that will stand in the way of what we have decided. But God has revealed to us what he is doing, and it is marvelous. Christ. It is all about Christ and what he has done for Israel, for Judah, and indeed for all of the world. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Remember that chiasm? Remember Peter's epistles? For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. What a wonderful story of love that we just take and we just tear apart. We don't like the Jews. We're going to form a theology against the Jews. 
We don't like how God is doing things and we don't want to study to figure out what he's doing. And so we just make something up. We pull verses out of the wind. We pick the commentaries that match what we believe and we never progress in our theology to understand the depth of the love of God for the people of the world. God has not rejected Israel. And that group of disobedient people living in the land of Israel right now with gay signs all over Tel Aviv, marches, pride marches, it doesn't matter. God will not reject his faithfulness towards them despite their unfaithfulness toward him. Anybody that thinks otherwise ought to go look in the mirror because you're the same as them over there from any moment to any moment. Our hearts are just as black and wicked as Israel's. Is God going to reject you because of what you thought this morning? Is he going to reject you because of what you did last night? He is not going to because he is a covenant-keeping God that says, despite your unfaithfulness, I will uphold my end of this bargain to my glory. I'm almost angry at what I've presented today because it's so heartbreaking that this is being taught around the world and it's been taught for 2,000 years that God is unfaithful to the covenant he has laid out for his people. Man, instead of that, we ought to be praying for those people. We ought to be evangelizing them and telling them that there is a hope for them. I got a closing. No, I got to give you a salvation call in case somebody could make it through my almost anger today. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Israel needs Jesus. Every Jew needs Jesus and every Gentile on this planet needs Jesus. If you just submit your life to him, just confess that you can't save yourself and that you know he can do it for you, he will save you. He will carry you across himself, the Jordan, the descender, into the land of promise someday. That is not a maybe. That is a guarantee from the God of the universe, the creator of all things, when he seals you with his Holy Spirit. He's not going to break his guarantee to you even when you break your promises to him. Our closing verse comes from Jeremiah 31. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Israel. Israel got the deal. We get grafted into it. We become participants in the commonwealth of Israel. We don't become Jews. We stay Gentiles. I get to eat my pork all day long and love it. Okay. Next week is Deuteronomy 24, 5 through 22. And don't forget it, kid. It's entitled, Remember What the Lord Your God Did. That'll be our 70th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? And I want you to know that if you were not going through these Deuteronomy sermons with us, I see everybody looking over here. I must be boring you or something. If you haven't been going through, if you were not going through these Deuteronomy sermons with us, you would not have gotten that information today. And I wouldn't have known how to weave the passages from Hosea together properly. Four verses with two words that are so important 
And when they're translated in English, you don't get any idea of what's going on. But you see how important those two words are, Baal and Ish? That's why you're going through Deuteronomy with me is because we're on an adventure together. This is something that we're joining in together. I'm learning as I go. And what a wonderful story we are being given. I mean, it is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable to see. I was so excited. I remember when I finished this sermon, I said, I can't wait to give this sermon to the church. I can't wait. But I thought if the rapture happens, I'll be happier about that. Whatever. (laughs) One more thing. Doug, once again, he never ceases to surprise me. He did a painting for this sermon, and he got it right, man. I'm telling you what. Every week he does it, and he gets the, the, the idea of what is going on in those passages beautifully. You go look at the, the uh, painting, for the look at the thumbnail, and if you want, I can send you any of his, or you can go to his uh, prophetic, I, I better not say it, anyway, his website. You can email me, and I'll give you, and you can zoom in on him. You can look at every detail. He's got details that are so small in his paintings that you'd never notice until you zoom in, and you say, oh, look at that. It's marvelous stuff. So he got this one. He pegged this one, all right? I got a uh, question for you before before you might get this if you get this question okay now again this is a two-part question so if you don't know both don't yell it out because i don't want to spoil it for anybody else what book and chapter of the bible does god say he hates divorce book and chapter hey come here come here come here you get it i didn't think i didn't think you get that i wanted to make today hard just so i could hold this one more week malachi 2 here you go I should have given it to you while you were... Oh, I'm so excited that you got it. I just called you up. Sorry about that. I, oh, wow. Well, I didn't think anybody was... I, they, I, that's why I said don't yell it out because I know everybody's going to get Malachi. I just didn't know if you get the chapter. Very good. Okay. Wow, I'm excited. Good job. Okay, certificate of divorce and we'll take communion. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her... And he writes her a certificate of divorce. So to you, I apprise, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house when she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, thus ending their married life, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled by her remarried life. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so you shall understand. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness to Israel, which gives us all the assurance we need that you are faithful to us when we are unfaithful to you. Thank you for that lesson. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.